Welcome back to the SBS Sports Talk Show presented by the Sports Business Society at UVA. I'm Michael Rockless along with my co-host Nick O'Connor and our producer Will Harden. Tonight we're going to deep dive into the NCAA tournament which starts today, Thursday, and we're also going to talk about NFL free agency. Last week, we talked about our auction leagues for March Madness. That will be our hypothetical or deep dive question today. Make sure you listen to this at 1.5 times speed. Hit it. All right, it's good to be back. We uh, took a week off. Wasn't much happening in between March Madness. No NFL free agency. Baseball, obviously, in a lull period. Uh, basketball still in the regular season as well. Uh, but we are going to start with NFL free agency, which opened up this week officially on March 14th, but a lot of rumblings and trades uh, leading up to it. So let's just start with the biggest headliner of the period. Uh, the big story we had talked about before was where was Captain Kirk Cousins going to wind up? He uh, wound up with the Minnesota Vikings, which was, as the process went along, the favorite. That's a big-time move. What were your thoughts, Nick? Yeah, I think definitely when they released Case Keenum, that was the direction that they're heading in, and I'm sure that there's some indication that Kirk Cousins was going to come to the Minnesota Vikings. Um, I think as any NFC fan, you're really scared of this uh, of this move because you know Vikings were already Super Bowl contending teams last year with Case Keenum, and I think this year with Kirk Cousins, if he can perform at that elite level, that they are serious threats. Yeah, I, one thing is they had their three quarterbacks. Just a weird situation in Minnesota. Three quarterbacks, uh, Case Keenum, who started most of last season, got him to the NFC Championship game. Sam Bradford, who they traded a first and fourth round pick for, started the previous season and played very well, although they didn't make the playoffs. And their previous franchise quarterback, Teddy Bridgewater, who had that gruesome knee injury. All three of those guys were free agents, so it was very clear they were going to make a move, whether it was retaining what seemed like most likely retaining Case Keenum, if they were to retain anyone, or making the move for uh, a Kirk Cousins. That's ultimately what they did. Personally, I'm going to say I agree with you in the sense that it's the rest of the NFC probably going to have to look out for this team for a while to come. Solid roster, good coach, good playmakers, on and on. But I really don't like the move. I, I think that they, and, and they're in a tough spot, as a lot of NFL teams are that don't have that elite quarterback, because I don't think anyone would classify Case Keenum or Sam Bradford or Bridgewater as an elite quarterback. I'm not classifying Kirk Cousins as an elite guy either, um, and I don't know if the rest of their team is necessarily there that will allow them to compete with the Green Bay Packers, the Philadelphia Eagles, obviously, the New Orleans Saints, who've re-upped with Drew Brees for two years, and then so on, go with the Los Angeles Rams, who also have a very talented team, an up-and-coming quarterback, and even San Francisco moving forward with Garoppolo and Shanahan. I don't think Kirk Cousins, I think of all those guys I mentioned, I didn't even mention Matt Ryan and the Falcons, Cam Newton and the Panthers, or even uh, Matthew Stafford and the Lions. I don't think Kirk Cousins is better than any of those guys, and to give him all that guaranteed money for three years, I still think it will be very hard for them to break through. I think they'll be competitive, but at the end of the day, I don't know if this move puts him over the top, which is essentially what they needed to do. Yeah, I agree with you in the sense that he is not better than any of those QBs that you mentioned, but I think what they're hoping for is that he will become one of those elite QBs. I mean, he's still relatively young in QB years. Um, I mean, as a QB, you can really play up until you're in your late 30s, relatively. I mean, if you can have that consistency. So I think what they're hoping for with Kirk Cousins is that he's shown that magic before. He's shown that elite talent at some, at some points in the season. They're just hoping that that can turn into some consistency. 
I, is that I don't know. Is that what they're hoping for, or is what they're hoping for for them to plug in? Who Kirk Cousins is by all measures an above average quarterback to plug him into what they probably believe to be the NFL's best defense, uh, along with you know great skill position players and Dalvin Cook and uh, Adam Thielen and Stephon Diggs, um, and plug him in there and and think that he is enough with those guys because I don't think you're going to get Kirk Cousins to ever play better than. Aaron Rodgers or Russell Wilson or Carson Wentz or Drew Brees. Or even, even better than Case Keenum did last year. I mean, Case Keenum had a great season last year. Yeah, he, so he really, really did. You've got to expect that Kirk Cousins can have an even better season than that. Right, and so, and now, granted, they made it to the NFC Championship game, and it's not like Case Keenum played well and they lost that game. He did not play well against the mm-hmm. Eagles. Tough task on the road. Um, but, yeah, I mean, what it's going to come down to for the Vikings is does this move put him over the top? And as solid as Kirk Cousins is and as solid as the rest of their team is, I, I still think that they probably do not have a great shot. Like, I would not consider them the team to beat in the NFC. I still think there's a pecking order. I mean, we I mentioned almost half the teams in the NFC, if not half, didn't mention Dallas already. You know, Alex Smith, you could consider an upgrade over Kirk Cousins for the Redskins, although their team isn't as good as the Vikings. Like, I think you got to go a long way to find a spot where Kirk Cousins is definitely better than that guy. And it just so happens, you know, the deepest rosters in the NFC, the Eagles, the Rams, and the Saints, those guys, those teams have quarterbacks that are at least comparable with Jared Goff or way better than Kirk Cousins with Carson Wentz and Drew Brees. I, I, it'll be interesting. The other facet of the deal that's very interesting is they gave him all guaranteed money. I believe something like $28 million a year, which makes him, I think, the highest paid on a per annual basis. So it's a lot invested in Kirk Cousins. Um, and we'll see. I mean, it's, it's a big move for sure. And they're going to be relevant for the next couple years while he's there. But does it put him over the top? That's the big question I have. And my guess would be no. Yeah, I think there's a lot of questions that I think only time will tell. So we'll just see how his performance plays out next season. So moving on to the next big free agency um, with Case Keenum moving to the Broncos. What are your opinions on that? So I think if, if you're Denver now, maybe that's a team where if you got Kirk Cousins, maybe we had talked about, I know you like Cousins to the Broncos the whole time. Maybe he could have put them over the top. The AFC, not as deep at that quarterback position. I mean, obviously you start with Tom Brady and Ben Roethlisberger, but after that, is there really anyone, you know, if Kirk Cousins was there, he he's probably in that next class, depending on Andrew Luck's health. Um, but, you know, for the Broncos, you they have to hope. The defensive pieces, some of them for the, are still there. Uh, still have Von Miller, obviously, who's a Hall of Fame talent, and still have some good receivers. But is Case Keenum, even if he gives you what he gave the Vikings last year, which, you know, you'd be crazy to think if the, he could give you much more than that, does that put him over the top? I mean, again, probably not. I think it gives him a little bit of stability at that quarterback position that they haven't had with Simeon, who they traded to the Vikings, uh, and Osweiler, and uh, who's the other, Paxton Lynch. Um so it gives him a little bit more stability there. But again, is it a move that puts him over the top? Definitely not over the top. Maybe makes him more relevant. They should get some better play there. But that's an interesting landing spot. Obviously, they signed Keenum before Kirk Cousins was signed. So they saw the writing on the wall there. But what were your thoughts on that on that move? Because it is a big one, too. Yeah, for me, obviously, you know, I don't think there's that much difference in between a Vikings defense and a Broncos defense from last year. Um, I don't think there's that big of a discrepancy. The variable for me that's going to be the biggest thing is that he's in the AFC now. And there's so much, um, I mean, there's so much room to be able to improve and to be able to be that elite team. I mean, outside of the Patriots, even Ben Roethlisberger, he's been very, very shaky at times. I mean, Steelers haven't proved that they can do it consistently. Outside of the Patriots, there really isn't that elite team. And I think, you know, with this move that they can become that second seed 
And, you know, if the Patriots start to deteriorate at times, they can, you know, overtake that. But so, I mean, you're saying that, like, Case Keenum's going to be the thing that puts him on the doorstep of a Super Bowl. I, I just personally, I don't see it. Uh, I don't think he is personally, but I think he improves that team to make them on that doorstep. So I think the defense is going to carry them like they did with Peyton Manning. I don't think Case Keenum's going to be that hero, but I think just because how weak the AFC is, in my opinion, I think that they can definitely be on that knocking door. It's possible. I, I mean, I would say at this point, I like the Chargers. I like the Chiefs. Um, if Deshaun Watson can come back healthy, I like the Texans better. Um, I like the um, the Jaguars better, even with Blake Bortles. And then, of course, you New England's the cream of the crop, and Pittsburgh, too, um, in the AFC. So there's a lot of teams I still have on the pecking order ahead of Case Keenum and the Denver Broncos. So, you know... We'll tell, we might we let's get into this now actually. Um, so a lot of moving pieces at the quarterback position. We talked about the two biggest ones already. Sam Bradford, another big one, signing with the Arizona Cardinals, a one-year, twenty million dollar deal. The Jets brought in Teddy Bridgewater and signed Josh McCown. Um, the Browns traded for Tyrod Taylor, which we'll talk about the Browns to later. But the big thing is the draft at quarterback. There's a lot of guys that could be going in the top, you know, five, ten, first round as a whole. Looks like a lot of those starting jobs got filled. What were your thoughts on all of these teams that were quarterback needy um, and probably primed to get one in the draft? It seems like they filled, at least in the short term, so that window's still there for them for them to get someone. But a lot of those teams, like we mentioned, did fill those quarterback spots. So who's really going to be gunning after that quarterback now? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I think it's either of a function that teams think these QBs perhaps aren't as great as that everyone's touting them to be, or they want to you know use them in the developmental stage. So they're not going to start them the first season. They're going to play them behind the Sam Bradford, behind these QBs to let them develop for a couple of years and get better. Um, I think perhaps it's one of those two approaches, but it is interesting that all of a sudden you have a bunch of teams that were contending to get a quarterback, you know, fill those positions. So it'll be interesting to see on draft day, you know, what the Browns do with that pick. Um, you know, number one overall, if they're going to trade down because they don't really need that QB anymore, or if they're still going to go after that QB. Yeah, I, I think that the free agency is huge implications on the draft. And, you know, if you were to project free agency going into it, there were a lot of these quarterbacks who are going to be available, and there's a lot of these teams that needed quarterbacks. So it's not ridiculously surprising that they plugged them with guys who can be short-term options, like you mentioned. Um, big, you know, takeaway for me is Nick Foles isn't getting traded. There's no, there's no team, maybe the Bills, if they want Nick Foles for a year and they're going to draft someone, maybe. But no, he's and not as, getting traded. And as an Eagles fan, what did you hear? Was it more that they just didn't want to trade Nick Foles or was it that there's no open markets? I, I think these teams filled their spots. And, yeah. I, and I don't think the Eagles were going to give him away cheap. I think they were going to, you know, get if they're going to trade him, they're going to get very good value for him. And with all the options available, like we've talked about, those teams filled it with those options. It was better moves for them. Now, there's one team that's definitely going to make a move for a quarterback. This is the Buffalo Bills. Mm-hmm. So they traded away Tyrod Taylor. They have Nathan Peterman, who struggled last year. Uh, but they were able to trade a left tackle they had. I had Cordy Glenn to, um, to who is it, Will? Do you remember who they traded him to? They traded him to... Uh, I should know it. The Bengals. It was the Bengals to move up. They had the 21st and 22nd pick. They traded Cordy Glenn to the Bengals to move up to number 12, I believe. So now they're they following the Eagles model 
of moving up. The Eagles did this to get Carson Wentz moved up from 13 to 8, and then they were able to strike into the top two. The Bills are going to be a team that's definitely going to draft a quarterback in the top five. Definitely. Yeah. They're, they're a lot. And do you think they're that team that's going to be looking to try to trade for that number one pick, that number two pick, or number three pick, if those teams are willing to willing to shop those trades? Yeah, it depends who's willing to shop them. I think Cleveland's going to keep it, whether they go with Saquon Barkley or a quarterback. Uh, the Giants might be getting a quarterback themselves. Team to look out for, in my opinion, is the Indianapolis Colts. They're not going to be drafting a quarterback, and those top spots are going to be premium positions. And one thing I also wanted to touch on was all of these teams that brought in these veteran quarterbacks, I think they're going to do exactly what you said, which is use them in the short term, groom a young guy, very much so in the projected model that the Eagles had when they had Sam Bradford and Chase Daniel, and then they drafted Carson Wentz. And it's not even that they that they groomed Carson Wentz for a year. It's also the fact that they had multiple quarterbacks who are worth keeping on the roster and able to play. So the Eagles brought in Nick Foles. And, and when he went down, they had someone to fill in and win a Super Bowl for them. So I think a lot of these teams now are really realizing the value of that backup quarterback position where there's so much volatility and injuries in football that, you know what, even if you have a, a, a rock star rookie quarterback in Sam Darnold, what does it hurt to have Tyrod Taylor? What does it hurt to have, you know, Sam Bradford or Case Keenum or any of these guys or McCown or any of these guys that these teams have brought on on these short-term deals? doesn't hurt, and I think that's kind of the model that these teams are moving forward with. With all these teams filling up these QB positions, you know, potentially, you know, they still could get these young QBs. Does that devalue the top picks at all in the sense that is it that important to be in that top five, to be in that top seven, or do you think you can still get that elite QB in that 10 to 15 range? I think these teams are still going to want their quarterbacks. Uh, I mean, that's going to be the most important thing because I don't think most people, most of these teams are fooling themselves into thinking that Sam Bradford or Josh McCown or Teddy Bridgewater or so on and so forth are winning them a Super Bowl. Um, so I think the urgency will still be there. Um, but, you know, they just got to make sure they get who they want. I mean, you don't want to be stuck with someone you don't want, uh, obviously. So I think it could shape the draft a little bit, but I also think the big thing is it's going to allow these teams to to let their rookies, they don't have to play if they're not, you know, if they're coming along a little bit slower, which, you know, may not be a bad thing. They don't have to play because there's going to be established veterans who can give you quality play and your team isn't going to be a disaster. And, you know, they, maybe they'll help the young guy too. Yeah, I'm really excited to see what the Browns are going to do in this draft just because they have so much flexibility in what they can do and what direction they can head in. Um, I don't know if you've heard anything, but what are they looking for in Tyrod Taylor? I, I really don't know. I mean, that was an interesting move. I think the Browns that made off guard. They, they made a, uh, a plethora of interesting moves. It was all on, I believe, uh, Friday when we were flying back. Um, so we missed, we were, we were, you know, traveling and getting all these notifications. But, but I mean, you, they trade for Jarvis Landry, Will's, Will's Dolphin, trade for Jarvis Landry. Um, they trade for um, cornerback for the Packers, um, Denorius Randall. They traded for, who's the other guy they brought in? Tyrod Taylor, obviously. Um, and then they traded a defensive tackle to the Patriots. So a lot of moving pieces there. And you bring in Tyrod Taylor, and I think now they're saying, okay, we are tired of being 0-16, flirting with 0-16, 1-15, whatever. Let's get Tyrod Taylor in. They're definitely not going to be the worst team in the NFL with Tyrod Taylor. They're not going to be 0-16 with Tyrod Taylor. And then that will give our rookie a little bit less pressure to come in and be the savior. So that's probably what they're looking to do. But really interesting offseason for the Browns so far. Of course, they still hold picks number one and four. Um, you know, could be Saquon Barkley, could be a quarterback there. But, you know, they really have a prime opportunity to shape their franchise moving forward. Of course, their star player, their franchise player, Joe Thomas, retired uh, today. But, but, I mean, they're in a great position to really, if they can have a good draft, 
they can be set and, you know, really shape, turn around the fortunes of the organization. Yeah, I think we can definitely see that. There's just a ton that a lot of teams can can do in a lot of different directions that they can go in, um, obviously with the QB position. But outside of the QB position, you know, looking at free agency, uh, was there anything that caught your eye? Yeah, so, I mean, one of the things that I was pretty interested in, and it wasn't a, a surprise to people that had followed it closely, but uh, the dismantling of the Legion of Boom and the Seahawks. Um, obviously, they released Richard Sherman, who signed with the 49ers, who are going to be good. Um, and then if they traded Michael Bennett to the Eagles um, for, you know, pretty cheap value. Um, so, I mean, to see that team really move away from, and, you know, that's the price of going to Super Bowls and winning a Super Bowl like they did in 2013 and getting back to that game in 2014 is your player's age. They get on their the end of their, you know, contracts, and they get, you know, uh, increases in salary and you're just not going to be able to retain anyone and for the Seahawks are shopping Earl Thomas to the star safety Cam Chancellor might not play this year because he's injured I believe Cliff Averill's in the same situation with a neck injury they're looking at a completely different team a lot of turnover on that defense and a lot of reliance on Russell Wilson for a team that didn't make the playoffs last season for the first time since 2012 um, so a lot of turnover there. And I thought that was very, you know, interesting to see an era of football, really one of the dominant defenses that we've seen come to a close. Yeah. Especially just that consistency over a three or four or five year span where they've just been the dominant defense, um, or where everyone, you know, with that league has been feared of, um, you know, I will be interested to see, you know, what Russell Wilson has to do for them to make the playoffs. I mean, he played, I think in my mind, really incredible last year and they weren't even even able to do so. So I wonder, you know, what direction that they're going in next year, you know, without this defense still without a running back situation um it just they don't seem like a very strong team they seem like the they're gonna be on the bottom of the bunch yeah I, I don't know about bottom of the bunch but I mean we had talked about all these teams in the NFC and I wouldn't say that I'd put them in the you know there's 16 teams in the NFC I don't know if I'd I would put them in the top eight Right, I don't know if I'd put them in the top eight, but they're not going to be 13 through 16. They, I don't know, though. It's going to be really hard for them to make the playoffs. I, I mean, it just, it just is, because yeah. there's a lot. I mean, even you go back to last year with the Vikings with Keenum, the Rams with the worst team and a year younger of uh, Jared Goff, um, that still beat the Seahawks by a couple of games. And now it seems like all these teams in the NFC, Aaron Rodgers is getting healthy. The Saints are 49ers. running it back. 49ers are much better. It seems like all of these teams are trending in one direction and Seattle's trending in the opposite mm-hmm. direction, which is a really bad sign when you consider they didn't even make the playoffs last year. So, yeah, I think a lot's going to fall on Russell Wilson, who, by all respects, is a top five, maybe top six, seven, eight quarterback, depending on who you are. I'd say top five pretty easily. Um, a lot falling on him, but lose Jimmy Graham. They don't have a running back still. I mean, they have a lot of holes, and it's going to be hard in a very seemingly very competitive NFC for them to, to get back to the playoffs and ultimately get back to a Super Bowl. I don't yeah. see it happening uh, until they, they, they almost need to rebuild. Yeah, and that's what we see with the NFL, right? You have these teams where they're, they have this dominant stretch for perhaps three, four years. Obviously, you know, have exceptions like the Patriots and, you know, consistent teams like that. But outside of those, you know, you have like a Seahawks you know, who are good for three or four or five years. You know, you have the Saints who are good for three or four years then fall off for a couple of years. And it's just it's just so tough for, you know, a franchise outside the Patriots to have a dominant stretch. And this is definitely that time where they're going to be rebuilding and looking to restructure, definitely adding some pieces on defense. And again, they just have so many weak pieces on offense as well. Yeah, and I think, I think you uh, hit on some key points there. I think this is what makes the NFL so great is, you know, you have these teams that have reached the pinnacle. The Seahawks are the best team in the NFL for, you know, three-year stretch basically. Um, and all your guys, they, they, they're all good. They're all in this great team. They're all going to get paid more than they're probably worth. So you can't retain them. Similar thing with the Eagles. They don't have to pay their quarterback Carson Wentz yet, 
But next year, he's going to be the highest, you know, among the highest paid quarterbacks in the league. And you see them right now scrambling to retain some of the players that were free agents and they lost, you know, the majority of them. They did a pretty good job bringing in talent like a Michael Bennett, re being able to resign uh, one of their starting linebackers, Nigel Bradham. But, you know, that is really, you pay the bill of winning the Super Bowl that those off seasons after you win it. And it is so, so hard to sustain. And that's why the Patriots run has been so amazing and so impressive and so unlikely that it's just, it's fan, you know, on their part, it's really, really impressive. And it's, you can see as all these teams that have had success, they lose their players, their core ages. It's just really hard to maintain that level of, of dominance. And, yeah. and, and it seems without a doubt that most important factor is having that management that can year in and year out get players, no matter what, to come into your team and work. Um, and now obviously you have Belichick and you obviously you have Brady, but it, it starts at the top and having that right management to make the right moves. Um, and, and I think that's what you see in organizations like the Eagles nowadays. You know, I mean, having that management to be able to um, get free agents and things like that. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that was some good football talk. We'll uh, probably won't be as much news going on in football uh, in the next couple of weeks. But as we approach the draft, we'll be talking uh, about that because that's always a fun time. All right. So now we're going to transition into um, March Madness, of course, which the uh, big tournament starts on Thursday, which is today when this podcast is being released. Uh, but before we start anything, uh, University of Virginia, the Cavaliers, number one overall seed, very deserving, no no debate about it, unanimous number one for a couple weeks in a row now, and, uh, a couple weeks in a row now, dealt a ginormous blow uh, right before the tournament started. DeAndre Hunter played through a broken wrist in the ACC tournament, and he is going to have surgery, and he will not be playing in the NCAA tournament. Um, as a team that was presumably the favorite, if not right up there with Villanova as the number one favorite with, with Hunter, what do you think this does to Virginia's chances uh, moving forward as they enter the tournament? Yeah, for me, it just decreases that, that dominance that they had as being that number one seed. Uh, for me right now, just... I'm just a, such a huge fan of DeAndre Hunter. I think throughout the season, he's been that crucial factor for them to win so many of those key games. For me now, I think Villanova is that top seed in that um, I think they have the greatest chance to win the, uh, to win it all. Um, but again, I think in UVA system, um, they can still be able to find players to replace him, like Nigel and, and some of these other role players off the bench to hopefully fill in those shoes of that offensive role. Um, I think we'll be we'll come to you know into question about how much um he's really valuable to the team is when they face that offensive matchup um and they need that scoring because that's where he comes in and, and he's and a great defender he's a great too. defender obviously but he's just one of those players for me where he can give the ball to and he's one of those special players that can go get his own shot and score and i think that is so important in the ncaa tournament um with just so many games in a row and so many so much stakes on the line so i think when they get to the second round or if they, if they get to the second round or the third round um you know if they play the offensive talented team you know how much of an impact will that make yeah i agree i mean you could ask uva fans i would say deandre hunter is anywhere you know acc six man of the year i would say he's anywhere from as crazy as it sounds their best player to their fifth best player i think it's really hard to find a range for him um but as we've said multiple times even dating back to um, like December or November, that if this team was going to be a, take a step into the elite, which by all accounts they they definitely have throughout the course of the season, their five man lineup was going to be uh, Devin Hall, Ty Jerome, Kyle Guy, 
Isaiah Wilkins, and DeAndre Hunter. And that was their crunch time lineup. And DeAndre Hunter far exceeded expectations. We kind of knew what to expect from those other guys, at least to a degree. And Hunter exceeded those expectations. And, you know, they were the number one team in the country by a mile. And it's just a huge blow. Now, what I will say, though, I still think that they are capable of going on a run. Um, I still think the Final Four is definitely within reach. Obviously, it's within reach. I think the national title hopes take a major, major ding to their chances. Uh, But I would still think that they're the favorite in the South region. Obviously, they're going to have to contend with what looks like an Arizona and then on the other side of Tennessee or Cincinnati. Um, but I still think think that they're the they're the favorite in their region. Mm-hmm. I just think when we've looked at the past champions, usually every championship team, for the most part, has had at least one NBA talent. And for UVA, DeAndre Hunter was that NBA talent. I think projected next year, right, top fifteen pick, if I'm if I'm not wrong. Yeah, in that, that range, in that range, twenty twenty range. Yeah, um, right, I think right, he's right. the only player that will be in the NBA from that team, in my opinion. Mamadi, 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 yeah. But you know, not I don't think Ty Jerome or Kyle Guy really just has that NBA talent. Um, in my opinion. And so I just think you need one of those guys that just, again, create his own shot and just have the NBA um, style play in the tournament, especially in the later rounds. Yeah, I mean, I would say maybe, like, I could see a, a Devin Hall or a Kyle Guy or a Ty Jerome maybe finding a role in the NBA, kind of like some of these other UVA players have. But, like, DeAndre Hunter was their, their NBA guy. Like, he was going to be one of the people that are saying he is, you know, he's a redshirt freshman, so he's, you know, he's still young, and if he had spent another year plus in the program, he was going to be a jersey in the rafters count caliber UVA basketball player. I mean, he was going to be one of the best players Tony Bennett has ever had. Um, and to lose him for this tournament is a devastating blow. One guy we mentioned a minute ago, um, I think he's going to be the X factor moving forward is Mamadi Diakite. Uh, I think he has definitely has NBA athleticism. His game has only gotten better as the season has gone on. You saw him take a pretty, uh, some pretty bigger role towards the end of the regular season and early in the ACC tournament. He struggled in the final against North Carolina. But I think if you're looking for a crunch time lineup, I think instead of plugging Jack Salden, who I think will give you great minutes throughout the course of the game, I think Mamadi's your fifth guy. And I think for them to be able to go on a run, he's going to be, he's going to need to be the guy to step up the most. And everyone else who already plays and gets big minutes, uh, your three guards and Wilkins and Salt, those guys are going to need to elevate their game. And I think it's going to be really hard for them to take Hall and and uh, Kyle Guy and Ty Jerome off the court for much more than a minute or so. So those guys are all going to need to step up, but I think Mamadi is going to be the X factor for them moving forward. Yeah, I think you hit it right. It was that progression of talent throughout the season that was really impressive. For me, I was really skeptical, uh, skeptical, especially after the first couple of games. He just didn't look refined. He didn't look like... Um, you know, that player that I think perhaps, you know, UK fans were hoping for. And throughout the season, I think he just, um, you know, game in, game out, improved his game every, every single every single time. Um, and it's impressive because he, he is, again, that player that, you know, you can give him to him that 14, 16-foot shot and he can knock that down. And that's something that Isaiah Wilkins has been, you know, really lacking for me in these last... Um, perhaps a couple weeks. Um, so it just it, it's nice to have a big man that can that can shoot the elbow uh, jump shot and can create a little more space on the floor. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So that'll we'll wrap up the UVA talk there. Let's look elsewhere on the bracket. Uh, was there anything, um, Will? You can we'll toss you in here too because um, you've been quiet this episode. So we'll start with you, Will. What what jumped out to you on the bracket the most? Like, what's you think the biggest travesty? What do you think is the best matchup? Maybe. So what what jumped out to you when this bracket came out? I mean, I just think that UVA's side of the bracket is honestly pretty loaded. I might be biased, but I think Arizona as a four and Kentucky as a five are pretty difficult 
um, four or five seeds in that region. Luckily, you're only playing one of them. Yeah. Um, but then other than that, I mean, I know Xavier was slotted as a one seed for a while, but I just, I, I think they're probably the weakest one seed. I think they probably didn't really deserve that. Um, but I mean, that's what everybody else thought, and it's been like that for a while, so I understand why that happened. Um, I was really shocked that Oklahoma made the tournament. I mean, I think Oklahoma State, if anybody from the Big 12 especially, should have made it over them. Um, and there were definitely other teams that were probably more deserving than OU. But I do see NCAA probably wanted to keep Trey Young in the tournament. You never know what you're going to get with him. Yeah. What's your favorite or what, what matchup are you looking forward to in the first round? Um, I'm really looking forward to the Missouri-FSU matchup because I think it'll be interesting to play, see how Michael Porter Jr. plays after another week of practice. I think if they look good, they could be a dangerous team to make a run. Yeah, I think either of those teams could beat Xavier, too. So that, that mm-hmm. is an interesting game to me, too. All right, Nick, let's let's shift to you here. What uh, what do you, what caught your eye when the tournament came out? Uh, for me, I don't know. I, I think there's a lack of like first-round matchups that are really intriguing to me. I don't know if there's really that many teams... Um, you know, that many games that, I don't know, that just, that, that caught my eye. Um, I think, you know, Will touched on a, a point of Xavier just being that week one seed. I think that division will be especially interesting to see who will get out of that um, and, and, and who will get into that final four from that region. Um, I think there's, you know, a couple teams that really have a chance, um, like UNC, you know, they're playing really well in the ACC tournament. Um, as well as Michigan and Gonzaga, um, you know, are all very critical teams. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, which team out of that region um, will be able to make it. Because it seems like the other regions, uh, at least Villanova and UVA, they still seem to be the favorites. You know, Kansas, they do have, um, they do have Duke in their region. Michigan State, And too. Michigan State. So that will be tough. Um, but for me, it'll be, you know, seeing out these first games, how teams like Missouri, teams how like Florida State, Gonzaga, um, and UNC will play. Yeah, yeah, and you hit on it, um, Duke and Michigan State. I think one of the things that caught my eye is we, if all goes chalk in a couple spots, we might get some really, really fantastic Sweet 16 matchups. It almost feels like a travesty that a Sweet 16 matchup, only one of these teams, I guarantee you, only it's only possible for one of these teams to make it to the Elite Eight, Duke and Michigan State. I mean, these are teams like, they have the most talent in the NCAA. Duke, for sure. Michigan State, you know, been up to top two in the AP poll for a couple weeks uh, before their conference tournament. I mean, for only one of those teams to make it to the Elite Eight is, to me, that seems kind of, that's that's going to be a, as good of a Sweet 16 matchup as I can think of. I think last year we had UCLA and Kentucky, which was a great game. Lonzo Ball and De'Aaron Fox. This game, and it's in that same little quadrant of the of the bracket, this game is that potential game, hopefully it's one of the few times I'll be rooting for those two teams just because I want them to play each other so mm-hmm. badly. That game is really awesome. And then also on the on the other side is Michigan-UNC in the Sweet 16 as well. If those two teams can come together for a Sweet 16 matchup as the 2-3 in the West, I think that's a really, really fun basketball game. So I think, I don't know, I don't see a ton of upsets. I'm sure there will be plenty that happen. Um and, and maybe you see some some weird stuff go on, as it always does. But I really like chalk to hold in a couple spots, uh, those areas being one of them, with Duke, Michigan State, and UNC, Michigan. And I honestly think if you're a college basketball fan, you should be rooting for those for those teams that are early because those are going to be some of the best games of the tournament, really. And, and I think it's, you know, it's kind of especially crazy that Duke and Michigan State wound up in the same, you know, 
area of the bracket where only one of them can break through to the Elite Eight. But that was one of the things that caught my eye, and I'm excited for that game to happen uh, if those teams can make it to that point. Yeah, no, there's definitely a couple teams that, you know, you just mentioned that, you know, have that talent, but perhaps don't have that rank to represent it, and it'll be especially dangerous in this tournament. Um, so last question regarding, you know, March Madness. What do you see as that underdog team that has the most potential to perhaps maybe 316 or even further? Oh, that's a tough question. I mean, it's funny. You look at all these people that pick brackets, the experts so-called, and, you know, they, they're picking the best teams and they end up with all with all chalk, basically. Um, I would say I don't I don't think there's a lower-seeded team that I'd want to pick out and say is definitely going to the Sweet 16. I would say probably um, I think Gonzaga probably has a good chance to make it to the Final Four. That's a pretty popular pick. Um, other than that, like I could see a Texas Tech getting bounced pretty early. I could see a Tennessee getting bounced relatively early. Um, so those are, I don't know, you know, I don't know who it would be necessarily, but I think probably the, the team that's the lowest seed that has the best chance to make the final four is going to be Gonzaga as a four seed. Mm-hmm. All right. So now we are going to talk about, uh, the auction drafts that we, that we participated in. Um, and so there was two different styles. We talked about it, uh, last week so, or a couple weeks ago when we brought up the idea, we ended up running one ourselves. So the idea is, uh, there's two different versions. One version would be everyone has the same number of total points in the auction and everyone you, you, everyone's bidding on a team. Every team is owned by only one person. So you can't, multiple people can't own the same team. Um, so you have that aspect of it. And then you have every game that a team wins is worth a percentage of the pot and progresses as you go throughout the tournament. So we ran ours on Monday night. What were your takeaways on how the process of that worked? Did you like it? Is it a pool you're going to want to continue into the future? Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting process. I loved it. Um, you obviously, and now after the draft, you always say, you know, I wish I had this knowledge, you know, before, um, because you know how our draft panned out, which was, um, you know, those top teams, which, you know, are really expected to go the furthest, didn't really have as much value as I thought people were going to put in them. Um, you know, so for me and Mike, you know, we both got UVA and Villanova. No, one, I, got, oh, yeah, yeah, I got Villanova, Mike got UVA, um, you know, obviously two of the favorites to win the tournament. At the um, time, DeAndre Hunter was healthy when I And again, no one really made those, you know, um, those increasing bids for those teams, which is interesting. Um, and then you had a lot of people with their money left later on. Um, again, for teams that are in that 9 to 16 range that don't even probably have a probability to even get out of that first round. Um, so I think people were a lot more passive than they're probably hoping to be. Um, that was probably my biggest takeaway. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a relatively like interesting like uh, behavioral like study almost where people are pretty timid in the early going and you can get some really good values early and then once the really top teams are gone I think people start to panic and bid a little bit more and then once you get into that mid-tier you start getting those really good values again those six seeds because everyone's thinking it's like oh do I really think you know Houston for example if they lose a game are they worth this much but you know you should have a value for everyone but there are some really good values to be had particularly early and then when you get to the end and everyone has money left to spend you end up paying more for you know a 13 seed than you would for like an eight seed just because of who has money when and I think it's a pretty interesting interesting process in that regard. And so one of the other um, things that I mentioned when we did this the last time was that a different way you could do it would be no cap on the auction. So everyone just spends the money they want to spend and the money they, you know, they purchase a team for is the money that they're committing to it. And the overall pot is an aggregate of what people spend and you still do the percentages. So I actually went to a draft uh, like that as well and observed it and the pot got to a very large number, um, much more than students could afford. And it's funny, it was the very, very similar thing where about in the top 30 teams, about 
14 or 15 of them, about half of them went for an undervalue, a severe undervalue. And people that were sticking to their script ended up capturing a lot of that value. And then as you moved on, you did the low, the higher seeded teams later, people were like, well, if, you know, Kentucky went for X number of dollars, a thousand dollars, then, well, of course, you know, three seed Tennessee's got to go for more than that. So you saw all the values get inflated as it went on because people didn't want to let that value of Kentucky get better. But the fact of the matter remained that if you were the person scooping up those teams early on, all you're doing is capturing that value because you were getting them for lower value than you projected. And then as the bids got higher for those teams later on, that only increases the value of the teams you got, which I think is just a very interesting concept. Yeah, no, I think if everyone had that mathematical approach coming in, in the sense that they calculated the expected value that they should place on every team, then it would go a lot differently. Obviously, you just didn't have that with every uh, with every auction, and so you had players who didn't quite know what the value was of the team, so they could have overbetted or underbetted, um, rather than those people that did those diligent research beforehand. Um, so it's interesting to see you know those two um, sides kind of going at it. Um, it would have been interesting to see if everyone had those expected values beforehand, if everyone did the math beforehand, and see how that would have played out. Probably be a lot less fun. Probably a lot less fun, exactly. So you wouldn't have as yeah. much overbetting. You, you need some like you need some irrational people exactly. in these to make them to make them flow. They always make the betting a lot more fun. Yeah. Well, you participated in one of these uh, along with us. What what were you, what was your takeaway from? Was it fun? Would you do it again? Yeah, I would definitely do it again. Um, in doing it a second time, having uh, one round under my belt, I think would definitely make the draft different, especially if everybody had that experience. Um, so that would be very interesting. But I agree with you guys how uh, at the beginning people are kind of timid, and then as it goes on, you start panic a little bit. But um, I really enjoyed it, and I'd definitely do it again. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a great method to do it. I would personally lean towards doing the uncapped version. I think that adds a lot more variability to it and adds a lot more skill because as you're going throughout it, you have to re- keep recalculating the value of the teams because the value of them changes as the, the projection of the pot changes. So I think it adds just an extra wrinkle. Um, you know, the, the problem is you need to get, you know, a room you where the, have to feel some money. Right, right. You need to get a room where the spending preferences of people align <laughs> so you don't have, you know, uh, a severe overweighting, uh, you know, to one person who has just a very high spending threshold. But, uh, but overall, I think it was a really good thing to do. And I'd encourage you, if you want something different for your March Madness pool, to, to give it a shot and be the smart person in the room who's scooping that value up early. Yeah, no, that was definitely um, an interesting way to, to tackle the league. And it feels like I really kind of had... Not that I had a choice, but that, you know, the teams I picked, um, you know, obviously I'll be rooting for them. It doesn't seem like it's just so up to chance, this bracket, which I which I like. Yeah, no, I agree. All right, that will do it for us. I hope everyone out there enjoys March Madness uh, and, and watches as many games as they can. And uh, we'll be back next week to talk about the uh, Sweet 16 and beyond. Thanks. Good luck. Yeah, good luck with the brackets.